Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Hello. Welcome to Wednesday evening at GCA. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. Last week we were introduced to good King Hezekiah. And we jumped from 2 Kings 18 mid-chapter over to 2 Chronicles and read about some of the reforms of King Hezekiah. Tonight we're going to talk about Sennacherib's invasion into Judah, the attempts by the Assyrian kings to take over Jerusalem since they had had so much success in Samaria, let's just keep going, and the fact that God once again is going to protect Judah and protect Jerusalem because that's not his plan. God has a different plan. He has through Isaiah, who we're going to be introduced to again tonight, but through Isaiah, 150 years in advance, God has already named Cyrus as king of Persia, and he's going to utilize Cyrus to allow the Jews to come back and rebuild the temple and ultimately the walls and the streets. And, and so that's God's plan. And so despite what Sennacherib wants to do, despite what the Assyrians intend to do, despite the fact that they are going to come take Jerusalem with ease because they've taken all the other major cities in the Middle East at that point, when they get to Jerusalem, God is going to defend Jerusalem and they're not going to be able to go any further. In fact, he's going to put a hook in their nose and take them back the way that they came. In fact, he's going to send an angel who is going to kill 185,000 in a night. And so when God intends to defend you, then God is going to accomplish exactly what he has intended to do and bring about the future that he has already declared. He is the God who declares the end from the beginning. And because he's the God who has all the power, because he is El Shaddai, because he is God Almighty, then he has the power to make sure that when he says what's going to happen, it then does happen. And God shows this over and over again. By the time we reach the end tonight, we will see God even work a miracle in order to confirm to Hezekiah that God is going to let him live another 15 years. And Isaiah asks Hezekiah what sign he'd like to see. And God is going to move the shadow backwards just to prove that he's in charge of everything. So that's the coming attractions. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Now, starting at verse 13 of 2 Kings 18, if you were to go read Isaiah 36 and 37, you would find this same story. In fact, you would find it practically verbatim. And so since we are introduced to Isaiah coming up in 2 Kings here in the life of Hezekiah, we don't know whether Isaiah decided to repeat what was written in the Kings. More likely, 
the fact is, since as we've been reading through First and Second Kings, we've just seen this rapid fire succession of kings. We haven't seen a great deal of emphasis on anyone except like there was Saul and David, but then we get into the kings and then everything kind of picks up and goes very quickly. But when we got to Hezekiah, everything slowed down and we got a couple chapters on Hezekiah because he was a good king and it, he's a significant part of Israel's history, not only because he maintained Jerusalem at a time when Samaria fell, but also because he is going to make a critical error in his statesmanship that is going to bring about the Babylonian captivity. And so he's a really key player, and chances are Isaiah recorded all of this because it's really, really important. And then the writer of Second Kings, who we have said before, maybe Jeremiah, they apparently just picked up that section and imported it into the kings because it is important history for Israel. But one way or the other, if you're reading through the book of Isaiah and you're reading the prophecies of Isaiah and then all of a sudden you bump into chapter 36 and 37 and you go, what's this? What does this have to do with? Why is this here? Well, that's why the second Kings is so important. It shows you where in the history of Israel Isaiah actually occurs and what his importance is both politically and nationally to Israel and Judah. Got all that? How many of you before we began this study had any idea where Isaiah fit in the history of Israel? Anybody? That's no hands. That's, oh, you got a so-so? Yeah. And so that's why we're reading these history books too because as we're going through them, we're understanding how the Bible works, how all the pieces fit together so that we get the big tapestry, the big fabric of the Bible. So let's start at verse 13. There's going to be a lot of reading tonight, lots of just narrative here, but in the midst of the narrative, there's some truly amazing theology. So let's start with the back and forth between King Hezekiah and Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong, withdraw from me, whatever you impose on me, I will bear. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Who's got some notes on that? Anybody know how much that is? Because it's several tons. Go ahead. 300 talents is 10, 11 tons? 11 tons, yeah. 30 talents is one ton. Yeah, so a ton of gold. I'm going to bring you a ton of gold and 11 tons of silver. Let's see if that will get you off my back. That would work for most people, by the way. (laughs) Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid. And he gave all that to the king of Assyria. 
So the way that he paid the king of Assyria was to take the treasures that belonged to God, the things that had been consecrated to the house of God, even the things that he had rededicated to God and had overlaid with gold and overlaid with silver. He went and carved all that fine gold and silver off in order to pay this requirement of Sennacherib. So, at that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. And then the king of Assyria, not satisfied with that, now that he's gotten everything he's required, he's going to up the ante. Okay, now that I've taken all your gold and silver, I'm going to conquer you. So the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rab Saris and Rab Shekah from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they went out, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the Fuller's Field. And when they called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of the king, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. So the king didn't actually come out, but he sent out his dignitaries. So go out and negotiate with them. See what they want. Let's see if we can, again, work out some kind of compromise. Then Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, what is this confidence that you have? You say, though they are only empty words, you say, I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? So he's thinking Hezekiah is relying on the king of Egypt. He's made some kind of other deals. Why are you so bold to stand against somebody like me? And now he's going to start mocking God and saying, now that God that you trust in, he can't be any help to you because all these other cities I've conquered, they all had gods and their gods didn't help them. So how is Yahweh going to help you if you have this kind of confidence, which was in Hezekiah's case, a confidence in God. But if you have this kind of confidence, you must have made a deal with somebody. You say, I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? Now behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? Well, that's wrong. Remember last week I said, hold on to the fact that the people are taking away the high places and taking away the altars. And he, misunderstanding it, says, well, if all these places of worship have been destroyed by King Hezekiah, you people don't have any place to worship your God, and yet you're still trusting him to do something for you? 
So he's even got his theology wrong. He misunderstands that the high places in the groves were all dedicated to foreign gods. And that's why Hezekiah took them down. But Hezekiah has taken them away and has said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, come make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. So, okay, I'm going to make you a vassal of Assyria if you'll come and make a bargain with Assyria, which probably means you'll fight for Assyria, which would be the only reason that we'd give you horses if you can provide men to ride on them. So the assumption is you're going to end up conquered like all these other cities and you're going to be a vassal state to Assyria. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horses? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? Again, wrong theology. He's now saying, the God that you trust, this Yahweh God, is the one who's strengthening us to conquer. I mean, after all, they conquered Samaria. Samaria is ten of the tribes of Israel. And they've deported those people and put them into slavery. So, of course, they would assume that the God of those people turned those people over to Assyria. And in truth, it is God who is in charge and did turn these people over to Assyria. What they don't know is that that same God is going to go after Assyria for the haughtiness with which they went after Samaria. So they're saying, how then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to Ramshakeh, I keep saying his name slightly different. I'm not sure which one is the right one. <laughs> they said to Rabshakeh, speak now to your servants in Aramaic. Okay, so the point of saying that they were by the upper pool, by the conduit of the upper pool, on the highway to the fuller's field, means that there was walls around them. They're in Jerusalem, and there are people all up and down the walls, and they're listening to this conversation. They're hearing the Assyrians say, we're going to conquer this city. They're engaging in psychological warfare. They're scaring the people ahead of time and making the people afraid. And so the people speaking for Hezekiah says, look, don't speak to us in Hebrew because we don't really want everybody to know what you're saying. Speak to us in a different language. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. And do not speak to us in Judean, in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me only to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall 
who are doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? Okay, so now they're just trying to scare the people. When we get done with you, there's going to be no food. Now hold on to that. That the promise is there's going to be no food because the Assyrians are here in your land. We're going to take the harvest. We know that the first incursion happened in, in spring. The fear of the people inside the walls is if the Assyrians are on the outside, they can't get to their fields. They can't get to their grain. They can't harvest anything. They're going to end up having to eat dung and drink urine. And so they're predicting a terrible drought of food if the Assyrians were to win. In a moment, you're going to see God say, not only is that not going to happen, but I'm going to make sure that the land produces food for the next two years. You don't even have to harvest it. You don't even have to seed it and grow it. All you have to do is go out and pick it, pluck it, harvest it, eat it. God will take care of you. So here the threat coming from Assyria is you're not going to have anything to eat. And God says, sure you will. <laughs> I've got this. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean, saying, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you from my hand, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. And this city shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't believe that. Don't believe what Hezekiah is telling you. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each his own vine and each his own fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cistern. If you'll just agree. I'll give you food, but if you don't agree, I'm going to keep you behind the walls and you're going to go starve until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. Okay, so the people on the wall are being threatened with, you're going to go hungry and we're going to conquer you, but if you'll just agree that we are your overlords now, not only can you come back to your own vineyards and your own cisterns, but then we will take you to a land like your own, where there's plenty of food and everything's going to be good for you. What did they really do to Damascus? What did they really do to the areas of Samaria? They took them into the land as slaves. But here they're saying, hey, come on, Assyria, it's great, you'll love it. Just come with us. You'll have your own condo. It's going to be great. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. If that's for me, tell them I'm busy. <laughs> no. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria. Make your peace with me and come out to me and eat each his own vine and of his own fig tree and drink each of the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you saying, the Lord will deliver us. 
So trust the king of Assyria, do not trust God, and do not trust Hezekiah. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? The answer is no. But also those lands had foreign gods, had idols. The only one that they actually conquered that had Yahweh as their God was the land of Samaria, which was under God's particular decree that Assyria was going to be the tool that God used to punish the people of Israel because the people of Israel had rebelled against God. But none of that means God doesn't exist. And the argument here from the king of Assyria is none of the other gods did those other cities any good. We conquered willy-nilly everywhere we went. So your God's going to be just like the other gods. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, or Iva? Have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people were silent. They answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. And when King Hezekiah heard it, this is chapter 19, verse 1, when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and he covered himself with sackcloth and entered the house of the Lord. And then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna, the scribe, and the elders of the priests covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. And all of a sudden, Isaiah shows up right here in 2 Kings and apparently already had a pretty good record going because the king knew where he was, sent his servants to go and find him, go speak to him, and go ask him what God says. So Isaiah obviously had a pretty solid reputation already, which the early parts of the book of Isaiah would indicate that he was already the prophet to Judah. So go and talk to him and say this, verse 3, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection, for children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard, and therefore offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor, and he will return to his own land, and I will make him fall in his own land. So God is completely in charge of this. God says, tell King Hezekiah not to worry about it. God is on your side. 
God has a different plan for Judah, and his plan is going to stand. How many times do you see in the Bible that men make their plans, but it's God's plan, it's God's counsel that will stand? God makes his determination. He's seated on his throne doing whatever seems good to him. And even though men say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to conquer, I'm going to go to a certain city, I'm going to grow rich, I'm going to, I'm going to do these things, it is always God's determination that ultimately stands. Because when it comes to a matter of power between your own self-will and God's eternal will, God the Almighty always wins. And if you know that, then you can understand why James would write that rather than saying, I will do this and that, I will go into a certain city and we will do business and we will get riches and we will, he said, instead say, if the Lord wills, I will do this and that. And even Jesus, I point out again, even Jesus, when praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, not my will, but yours be done. So ultimately, the Father's will is going to come to pass. Then, this is verse 8. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. When he had heard them say concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, behold, he has come out to fight against you, he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by saying, Jerusalem will not be given in to the hands of the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria now, you can see the haughtiness that God spoke of in Isaiah 10. You can begin to get some sense of it, that the king of Assyria is saying, Don't even let your God deceive you. Whatever I say is going to stand. If I say I'm going to conquer you, I'm going to conquer you. And don't let your God tell you not to worry about me. You can see why God said, we're going to take him down a couple pegs. You won't find that exact quotation anywhere in the Bible. We're going to take him down a couple pegs. Anyways. Very much like Pharaoh and his boast. Very much like Pharaoh. And very much like uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't this great Babylon that my hands have built? And God says, okay, now you're crazy. So, so you see this all through. And by the way, it ought to be a good warning to the rest of us. Not to get too high and mighty and start thinking that we're in control of this life. Or that we're in control of the outcome. And had we just done this other thing, then that wouldn't have happened. Everything's working out the way God has intended it. Everybody that God saves is what? Humble. Is humble. Oh, absolutely. Sometimes he has to make Yeah, I agree. So, thou shalt say, verse 10, Thus thou shalt say to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold... You have heard what the kings of Assyria have done in all the lands, destroying them completely, so you will not be spared. Did the gods of those nations which my father destroyed deliver them, even Gozan or Haran or Rezaph, and the sons of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath? 
Where is the king of Arpad? Where is the king of the city of Sepharvaim and of Hena and of Iva? So he's making his case that I've conquered all these areas and I've conquered all these fortified cities. And where are the kings of those cities? They've been wiped out completely because I'm the king of Assyria. I'm the master of my domain. So then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and he said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim, thou art the God, thou alone, and of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Now, I have to point out real quickly, if you're in a state that Hezekiah was in, Hezekiah is fearful that his city is going to be conquered and that his people are going to be taken, and he's fearful of what the king of Assyria might do to him. And you notice that when he goes to God, he doesn't start with, God, help me. God, save me. Me, me, me. He starts with, who is God? God who's made everything. God who is majestic. God who deserves praise. He starts in with praise. I think, again, that's a lot of the reason that when Jesus gave the model prayer, that he didn't start with, give us this day our daily bread. He started with, you're the Father who's in heaven, and hallowed be thy name, and thy kingdom come, the kingdom that belongs to you, your kingdom, your will be done. Pardon me? Put it in your mind who you're talking to. Absolutely. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now give us this day our daily bread. But start with who God is. So he says, O Lord, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim, thou art the God, thou alone, of all the nations of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and made earth. Incline thine ear, O Lord, and hear. Open thine eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. I also think that word living is very important because Sennacherib was bragging about all the other gods he had conquered. But those weren't gods. In fact, I contend that any god that you have to carry around who needs you to navigate ain't much of a god. That's a pretty weak god. I'm always amazed at, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm always amazed at the various different ceremonies that you see around the world some of them purportedly Christian where they carry statues which they worship but they carry them through the streets and I think if that character deserved your worship they'd get up and walk they would dominate in a way that would cause you to get down on your knees in front of them but if you have to carry them around Not much of a God. Anyway, truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria has devastated the nations and their lands and has cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, 
but they were the work of men's hands. They were wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. That's right. That's the correct theological outlook. These were not gods. That's why Sennacherib was able to conquer them. Because they were wood, they were stone, they were the work of men's hands. But you are the living God. You are the real God. And now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from his hand, that all the nations of the earth may know that thou alone, O Lord, art God. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let me add for a moment. Can you see now what the prophet's job was? God did not speak directly to the king. The king's job was to rule the people and to keep God's law within the society. The priest's job was to sacrifice toward God, and the prophet's job was to hear back from God. And that's why there was no one person anywhere in the Old Testament that ever held all three offices. If you were the king and you tried to go sacrifice, that was an encroachment. And so God very specifically made sure that nobody was ever called prophet, priest, and king and held all three of those offices until Jesus came on the planet. And Jesus is specifically referred to as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king. And that's important to hold on to. Okay, we, we've got to go here. Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, I have heard you. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, O daughter of Jerusalem, whom have you reproached? This is God now speaking directly to Sennacherib. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes? Then he answers his question, against the Holy One of Israel. Through your messengers you have reproached the Lord, you have said, with my many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses. I entered the farthest lodging place and its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank foreign waters, and with the sole of my feet, I dried it all up. All the rivers of Egypt I dried up. And then look at verse 25. We looked at it last week. Have you not heard? From long ago, I did it. That's God's answer. You're busy saying, look at me. Look at me go. Look at everything I'm doing. And God says, no, no. From long ago, I decided you would do it. I determined you would do it. It's the same thing that a moment ago we talked about the king of Babylon who after his craziness came to realize that the God in heaven is the God who does whatever he wants. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And God does all his will among the inhabitants of the earth and the armies of heaven, and nobody can stop his hand and nobody can say, what are you doing? So here's God saying 
to the king of Assyria who believes that it is by his might, by his strength, that he has accomplished all these things. God has said, don't you know that a long time ago I did this? I accomplished this? From ancient times I planned it? Now I have brought it to pass. So you might remember 45 minutes ago we began by me saying that God has all the power, has all the authority to not only pronounce what the future is going to be, but then has the power to bring it about. He can accomplish his will. The problem that we have is that we can make plans, and we very often do. What we don't have is the power to make sure that our plans always happen. I might say, by next year this time, I'm a millionaire, but I don't have the power to pull it off. I might buy a lottery ticket. I haven't bought one yet, which I'm sure is why I haven't won the lottery. But, <laughs> but I might buy a lottery ticket, and I might be filthy rich a year from now. But was that my plan? Did I accomplish that? No, that was God deciding what the outcome was going to be. And so our problem is not our lack of planning. It's our lack of power. It's our lack of ability to accomplish the things that we claim we're going to do. I had great plans for the month of April. I was busy running back and forth and taking care of my mom and taking care of the church and go, 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 and had just finished preaching for several days out in Gladeville and just busy, busy, busy. Got things to do. Got to go to Texas in June. Got to preach for Four nights out in Texas. I've got things to do. And God decided, no, you're going to lay down. And you're going to be in your sick bed, and it's going to look desperate. And then I'm going to raise you back up. And I'm going to let you go back to work. I'll let you go to Ohio. <laughs> let you go and do the preaching thing again. But remember always, remember always that every word that comes out of your mouth, I empowered. Remember, if you get up tomorrow and know your name, I did that. Remember, if you drive down the street and nothing crashes into you and kills you, I protected you. Mm -hmm. And so God is saying to the king of Assyria, from ancient times, I planned it. And now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. This is one of the things he was bragging about. I've destroyed all these cities and kingdoms. And God says, a long time ago, I planned that you would do that. That's my intention. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. Why? Because God planned it. They were dismayed and they were put to shame. They were as vegetation of the field and as the green herb. They were like grass on the housetops that is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. I know every bit of that. I know how you've rebelled against me. You don't sit down or stand up that I don't know about it. That's the kind of control God has. And those are the kind of things that David admitted, that God knew his going out and his coming in, that even before he was formed in the belly, God knew him. So now God is declaring his absolute sovereignty to the king of Assyria. Verse 28 because of your raging against me, 
And because your arrogance has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips, and I will turn you back by the way that you came. You're going back to Assyria, and you're not going to take Judah with you. Then this shall be the sign for you. And I think this is really fascinating because here Isaiah has said this to Hezekiah. But he wants Hezekiah to understand that this is God's plan. And so he's also going to give him a sign. But it's a sign that will take three years to accomplish. Now remember, they were inside the walls. They couldn't get to their grains. They couldn't get to their fields. The Assyrians were in their land. So they were worried about what they were going to eat. The king of Assyria is even threatening them that they're going to run out of food. And here's the sign that God is going to give them. Verse 29. Then this shall be the sign for you. You shall eat this year what grows of itself. It's just going to grow up of itself. Now, one of the Sabbath rules in Jerusalem and in all of Israel was that every seventh year, they had to let the land rest. One of the reasons that Samaria was taken out of their land was because they failed those Sabbath rules. And God said, I'm going to let the land have its Sabbath by taking you out of it because you stole the Sabbath from this land. And so chances are that the year after God said, this year you're going to eat from the land, well, that should have then wiped out all the food in the land. But if the next year is a Sabbath year, then you're not supposed to do any kind of plowing or planting in the land. But it's impossible that there's going to be food the second year. If they're not planting the first year, and then they eat the fruit of the land that year, there's no fruit the next year. But God says, you shall eat this year what grows of itself, and in the second year, what springs from the same. I'm going to make sure there's even more food in your land next year. So don't plant. So don't plow. So don't work the land. Let the land rest. Let it keep its Sabbath. I'll still feed you. And in the third year, you will sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. So God is promising them food for the next couple of years that they don't even have to work for. Now, of course, this is the same God who for 40 years made sure that bread came down from heaven every day. Six days a week. The seventh day of the week, no bread from heaven. In fact, they were told on Fridays to pick up a double portion of the food, and it would last all the way through the Sabbath. But if they picked up a double portion of the food on Monday or Tuesday, it got wormy and went bad. So this is even bread that understands the days of the week. This is bread from heaven that knows when it's the Sabbath and doesn't spoil. It's really quite remarkable. So that God can say in advance, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure that your land produces enough food for you this year and next year. And then on the third year, you can go back to sowing and reaping and plowing. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. In other words, there's a surviving remnant of all of Israel that is living in Judah, and I'm going to see to it that they're secure, that they're planted, and that they grow. For out of Jerusalem 
shall go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion will come survivors, and the zeal of the Lord shall perform this. Now I have to add one more thing. Don't forget that all the way back when Jacob, having had his name changed to Israel, when he was resting on his staff, talking, prophesying over his 12 sons and what was going to happen to them in the future, he said that the Messiah, Shiloh, was going to come from Judah. And so Judah, that tribe in particular, who are the tribe that are in Jerusalem, that tribe has to stay, has to remain, has to be in place until Shiloh comes. So even if they're deported into Babylon, had they been deported into Assyria, then they would have been scattered from Assyria, just like all the other Israelites were. But that can't happen because Messiah has to come. And so they can't go into the Assyrian captivity. They have to go into the Babylonian captivity because God has already named the king that is going to conquer them, Cyrus, who is going to allow the Jews to come back and reestablish the temple again. And Judah is going to remain and continue until Jesus gets on the planet. And then 70 AD, and he brings in Titus, the Roman general, and he routes all of Jerusalem and the temple, and, and the Jews are scattered until... 1948 and suddenly Israel's a country again and Jews can go back there and now they're trying to build a temple there which all sounds to me like God's pretty much in control of human history it sounds like he knows what he's doing so the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward for out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord shall perform this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come to this city or even shoot an arrow there. Neither shall he come before it with his shield, nor throw up a mound against it. They used to build mounds against the walls to go over the walls to conquer a city. But the way that he came, by the same way he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it. Why? For my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Not even for Hezekiah's sake and not for anybody in Judah's sake. He's going to do it because he's a God who is faithful to his own word and he's going to do it for his own sake to prove to the watching world that he's the only God. The God of Israel can throw off the king. In fact, make sure that king doesn't shoot an arrow, put up a shield, build up a mound, do nothing against Jerusalem because this is the God that is. All those other gods that got conquered, all the work of men's hands, all that wooden stone could not protect the people. But the God of Israel can. And so here's what he does. I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And then it happened that night that an angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 thousand in the camp of the Assyrians and when men rose early in the morning behold all of them were dead so Sennacherib king of Assyria departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh 
In other words, God put a hook in his nose and a bridle in his lips and took him back the way he came. And he did not shoot an arrow, put up a shield, or cast up a mound. Just like God said. He sent an angel to do it in one night, 185,000. I think I said last week, be careful how you throw around the word angel. Don't be telling your kids, be a little angel. You never know. (laughs) It came about that as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his God, that Adramelech and Sharezer killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. Not only did he go back to Nineveh, but then he was killed there while he was worshiping his foreign god. So do you think God pretty much cleaned up on that, uh, gee, you're the one who is going to conquer Jerusalem and your mighty hand is going to do it and don't listen to that God, that God of Israel? You think God took care of that haughtiness with which he conquered Israel? God made sure that he went back the way he came, his whole army was wiped out, and then God killed him. So don't be arrogant. And then he has to stand before him again. There's there's so much more. Um, Let's just go a little ways further, okay? Because I did promise you that we would see this. We're just going to continue on just a little ways. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. And then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to his Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And it came about before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up into the house of the Lord. Where apparently he was so sick that he could not go. But in three days, after you're clean again, you're going to go to the house of the Lord. And I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you. And this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And then Isaiah said, take a cake of figs. And they took it and they laid it on the boil and he recovered. Now I've read a couple of commentaries that say that this cake of figs was probably a poultice and that it probably had medicinal properties to it. But were not sufficient to heal him. The healing itself was miraculous. And so Hezekiah said to Isaiah, so what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I should go up to the house of the Lord on the third day? So Isaiah tells the king, you're going to get 15 more years and in three days you're going to be fine. You're going to be clean of of the boils, which means that he had a, a skin disease. So he could not go into the house of the Lord. He had to separate himself. 
And if he was going to be in the house of the Lord in three days, his skin was going to be clear. He was going to be fine. So he says, what is the sign? Show me a sign to guarantee that this is the word of the Lord. And Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing that he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or go back 10 steps? Okay, now we have to talk about that for a moment. Because some translations have sundial in there. But the original Hebrew doesn't imply sundial. It is the word for steps. In fact, chances are, especially because the king, wherever he was in his private abode, he could see this. So the chances of it being a sundial out in the garden somewhere, it's not something he can just look at. Chances are we are talking about a set of steps that ran from east to west, and that by looking at the steps as the day began, as the day ended, there was a shadow that was cast across the steps. And you could tell by looking at where the shadow was, you could know approximately what time of day it was. And so Isaiah asks him, since the shadow moves forward, since it moves from east to west, well then, ask which one you'd like. Would you like it to go forward or backward 10 steps? And so he wisely says, Hezekiah says, it's an easy thing for the shadow to decline 10 steps. If we wait long enough today, it's going to go down 10 steps. It's going to get dark tonight. It does every night. So since it would be easy for it to decline 10 steps, no, but let the shadow turn backward 10 steps, which would imply that God would have to do something truly miraculous because if the sun is going down and the shadow is advancing, the shadow would suddenly go back up 10 steps. And that's what he wants to see. Now, again, as you read the different commentators, most agree that God probably did not turn the world backwards. This was not like the first episode of Superman. This was not turning the world backwards because there were all sorts of cosmic and, and uh, galactic implications of that. Even our gravity is dependent on the rotation of the earth, and you don't read about people suddenly falling off the planet or anything. You just read that the shadow did go back. So this seems to be, and we'll see in a, well, we may not see tonight, but, but it seems to be a, a limited thing, that this was a miracle that happened in the land of Judah, in Jerusalem. So really all God had to do was darken that room so that the shadow would move backwards. He would not have to turn the whole world upside down in order to accomplish it. But however he did it, God did it. So Hezekiah answered, it is easy for the shadow to decline 10 steps. No, but let the shadow turn backward 10 steps. And Isaiah the prophet cried to the Lord, and he brought the shadow on the stairway back 10 steps by which it had gone down on the stairway of Ahaz. Oh, pretty remarkable. You know that at that moment, Hezekiah was going, oh, I'm getting well. Oh, I'm fine. I'm good. Three days from now, I'm fine. So we'll pick up next week at Hezekiah making a tactical mistake. He is going to... Uh, have emissaries from Babylon come to see him, and he is going to show them, 
in sort of a fit of, look how well I'm doing. He's going to show them all the treasures of the king's house. This is how rich I am now. And you can see now why Babylon would say, why don't we go down to Jerusalem and take all that wealth? And this time, God is actually going to let them. Because the same God who told Sennacherib, you're not coming in, is the same God who told Nebuchadnezzar, okay, you can. And God is going to use Nebuchadnezzar to punish Judah the way that he used Assyria to punish Samaria. And all of it, all of it, according to God, is what he planned a long time ago and has the power to bring to pass. Got it? So if you go away with nothing else tonight, go away with the realization that the same God who back here took credit for everything that happened in his kingdom, all the enemies that came in, all the wild animals, the food, the rain, all of that God took credit for, and that God doesn't change. That God hasn't in any way lost any part of his ability to declare the end from the beginning and by his power bring his determination to pass. Whatever is happening right now in the world, whether politically, whether kingdoms rising up and falling, or whether what's happening in his church, it's all under the control of a sovereign who does know what he's doing and it is ultimately going to redound to the good of his people. Right? Right. Right. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.